and with 30 seconds to spare. You need to put a blast plaque, a brass plaque up here that says Smith got it done under 45 minutes. <laughs> Amen. By the way, by the way, by the way, I have a tiny complaint to register. Somebody turned the heat up in here. <laughs> I, not really a complaint. Your comfort comes before mine. But I'm melting up here. I'll tell you that for sure. <laughs> well, we thank you so much for that presentation. And um, as you pointed out, there's been so many views uh, about this over the years, but uh, you, you handled it very well. We thank you for that. Uh, we're going to open it up to questions or comments at this time. Uh, so if your brother in the church, please raise your hand. Brother Josiah will bring you the microphone. Marcia. So uh, appreciate it. Enjoyed it very much. Um, and when you mentioned Ronnie, I almost chickened out and said, you know, <laughs> it's difficult, uh, you know, debating against Ronnie here in this particular congregation. But <laughs> do I understand you correctly that you're saying you can preach a sermon on this and say it's communion? Because that's kind of... Do I misunderstand you? It sounded like you said that you could preach a sermon using John 6.53 and apply it to communion. No, I don't think I said that. If I did, then I misspoke. You said what it was I a smaller say, part of it. What I can say is that eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus is a metaphor that refers to everything. Everything in the New Testament yeah. is one way of putting it. Right, that right. includes the communion. Okay, okay, so I, I have a couple. So it does include communion. Well, it, it can include communion, but right, right. it's much, much more. All right. So um, this occurred during Passover, right? This was, Passover was near. Yep, it was Passover. So it seems to me that John's drawing our attention to that. John is also the one that mentions the lamb, the Passover lamb. Uh -huh. And so, of course, Jesus established the Lord's Supper during Passover. Um, and then we're told in 1 Corinthians 5 to keep the feast. Uh, with unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So it seems to me that John makes a lot of connections uh, that Paul follows up there in 1 Corinthians 5, suggesting to me that John might be thinking about the actual Lord's Supper here. Um, he says, truly, truly, and I'm no Greek person, but the one thing I understand about truly, truly is when he says that, truly, truly, aletheos or something along those lines, it's a very specific Greek term that means indeed, in reality, as he's putting hyper-emphasis on this, which obviously you could, mm -hmm. you could say if you're not partaking in, in the doctrine of Christ. But it does seem to me that he's saying that this is an unusual statement I'm about to make. And I, I also would like to have you respond to if, why did the Jews revolt at this? If a philosopher or a rabbi were to say, you must imbibe of my uh, doctrine, I don't think that would be a revolting thing. But he lost many converts at this time because they turned away yeah. from them. And one, one last thing I'm adding a lot on here. The trogo. Mm -hmm. What about a connection with that verb and us keeping the Lord's Supper? Not once or occasionally. It means ruminate, right? Yeah, so basically. we ruminate in the Lord's Supper. Uh, and what I mean by that is Hebrews 10.25. We don't forsake the Lord's Supper. We make a lifelong habit of keeping the Lord's Supper. And so he's telling these Jews, just a proposition, that he's telling these Jews, you're going to have to be in the kingdom. And one of the primary aspects of the kingdom is you're going to eat 
the communion of my blood, the communion of my body. And it's going to happen day or Lord's Day after Lord's Day mm -hmm. for the rest of your life. Just comment on that. And I know Sean. Okay. Number follow. one, everything that you've said, well, it doesn't agree exactly with what I've said. Um, I can live with, that's not something that is out of line. I think the Catholics take it and make it something that is out of line with the doctrine of transubstantiation, which if anybody's interested, I can talk about it a little bit. But um, as I've said, I think that his phrase, eat my flesh and drink my blood, is talking about a much bigger thing than just an item of worship in a worship service. Now, here's how I would, here's how I would prefer to illustrate the idea. In, first, uh, in the first chapter of Isaiah, we have an indictment of Israel. And it seems like they were continuing to do all the things that were part of the worship that Moses gave them. But uh, I'm going to have to get my bifocals. I got these for a reason. And you're about to see why. Because I can't read without them anymore. He indicts them in very strong terms, beginning at verse 4. Sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. It's a pretty serious indictment. And later he's going to tell them, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Verse 16, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice. That's the big picture. Now, they seem to have been doing the worship, okay? Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my cords? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new boon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. What I see happening, and Jesus is admonishing these people about a spiritual appropriation of what he is and what he stands for. And yes, he's going to teach us to remember his sacrificial atoning death in the communion, and that's part of a bigger whole. The bigger whole is, and let's just put that in this in terms I think we can all understand because we all know people like this. I go to church on Sunday, I listen to the preacher, I give some of my money, I eat some of that bread, and I drink some of that grape juice, and I'm okay. But their lives out there the other six days of the week aren't anything like what they ought to be. And I would like, with, without being hypercritical of anybody who holds the view that you do, and I don't want to be that, I think that there's a bigger picture here. That's part of it. Fidelity to the Lord's pattern and the Lord's supper if a brother got up and read John 6 when he was waiting on the table, I wouldn't jump his case right after services. We might have a conversation eventually. Hey, what about this? And we'll have a nice, amiable discussion. Because this is not something to go into a war of words over like the Jews seem to have been doing in the synagogue there. But I think it's talking about a big picture. It's talking about not just a worship service or an item of worship. It's talking about the whole of the Christian life as we strive to follow Jesus 
And that would be my defense of my view. Great, Smith. That's good. Um, I think there's a couple of things here that are very important. Um, I'm trying to think where to start. Actually, I've, I don't think this passage is talking about the Lord's Supper really at all. I think this passage is pointing people to Jesus, to think about, accept, take Jesus words and character into their life. I think the Lord's Supper is pointing to Jesus. I think both things are pointing to Jesus, but not to each other. And one of the things I think that is important here is, if you're interpreting this passage, you can't have it both ways. That is, that part of this is figurative and part of it's literal. Uh, Jesus says, in verse 51, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. But now, we don't believe that because a person communes every first day of the week, that that automatically means he will live forever. He's got a few other things. He has to live the rest of his life in accord with Jesus. And I think Ronnie's argument is a valid argument. Uh, that is, unless you uh, eat the son of God and drink his blood, you have no life in you. If you have no life in you, if those are literal terms, then you've got a real problem. It looks to me like the whole passage has to be figurative. And to, to answer one of the things that Bart asked, uh, why, why would this drive away these false disciples? I think the key to that is I don't think they understood what Jesus was teaching right here on this occasion. Actually, I don't think the disciples understood it either. Jesus said, well, you also go away thinking they might. And, and they didn't understand what he meant, but Peter said, well, where would we go? Mm -hmm. We know better than to go back to Moses, and you have the words of eternal life. But he's really saying, we don't understand this either, but we're going to stick with you. And... But I think what did drive these people away is that whatever Jesus meant, he was not going to be their bread king. He was not going to kill the Romans and throw off their... He was not going to give them the, the things that were material that they wanted. They, and that's what drove them away. I had a quote in here. For time's sake, I wasn't able to get to it. Edersheim gave a very... very strong picture of what the Jewish conception of what their Messiah's kingdom was to be like. And it was eating and drinking and joy in the kingdom that they expected to be established, not eating and drinking and living life in the joy of the Holy Spirit, okay? I think the reason that they rejected him is exactly what you said. He said, you're, you're seeking me because you want some more bread and fishes. That's what it was about, a materialistic conception that he was dealing with. And he's going to disabuse them of that notion. And if they don't like it and they go away, on their head be it. I think one of the first things you said is very important. Jesus set up the feeding of the 5,000. He set up the whole thing. And 
in order to drive away these disciples who were following him for the wrong reason. That is to force him into an earthly militaristic kingship. He set the whole thing up. Now they were going to come and make him king by force. He sends the disciples away. He orders them away, according to Matthew and Mark. He goes up in the mountain, and then they, they don't see what happens to him. So they eventually go to Capernaum, and they find him. And they're seeking him, it says. That sounds good. He says, you're not seeking me because of my doctrine, but because you missed the loaves and the fish. And right. uh, that, would, that would not suit some of our megachurch pastors today who are seeker-friendly, which is another way of saying tickle their ears, and maybe we can get them to a point where they will actually become spiritually understanding people. That doesn't happen that way. Jesus created a crisis where they had to make a decision. Yeah. I'd like to make a plug for A.B. Bruce's book, The Training of the Twelve. He has mm -hmm. a wonderful explanation of this. It agrees with what you've said this evening. Thank you. Thanks, Smith. I appreciate it. How come it. you got the air conditioning and I didn't? Because I just put it on myself. <laughs> <laughs> Can't rely on good help. You got to do it yourself. <laughs> I want to give maybe just a general warning about developing theology or beliefs based on reactionism. I think sometimes people have a tendency to do that. We might look at the excesses of the charismatic movement and the Pentecostal church and say, well, I know I don't believe that, so I'm going to take a view of the Holy Spirit that basically means God isn't doing anything in the world anymore, and he's remote like the deist used to believe. Mm -hmm. Or we might uh, see women pastors in denominations and say, well, I know I don't believe that, so we relegate the role of women to having no teaching responsibilities in the kingdom of God at all, which Jonathan taught us is an erroneous view. Uh, we might look at this Jewish notion that some, but certainly not all, of the first century Jews had that Jesus was to be a warrior king and say, well, they were wrong. And so then we have a hyper-spiritualized view of the kingdom of God that almost makes it have no actual presence on the earth, that the kingdom of God is something entirely remote and removed, and uh, the, you know, that the, the presence of the kingdom of God is entirely in heaven, and nothing is happening on the earth other than maybe gospel preaching. I don't think that's right at all. And I think that's what we have done as a reaction to uh, sacramentalism and the doctrine of transubstantiation, when we can look at a passage like John 6 and say, well, there's no way this has any connection to the Lord's Supper at all. And I guess I'll just make this, um, I don't know if it's an argument, observation. In all three synoptic accounts of the Lord's Supper, and they're quite different. Matthew and Mark, you know, follow closely to each other. Luke's pretty different. But one commonality all three of them possess is an anticipation, is an anticipation of some kind of feasting in the kingdom of God. Matthew and Mark connect it to the fruit of the vine. I'll not drink this fruit of the vine until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. But Luke connects it to the actual Passover. I've desired to eat this Passover, but I'll not eat it with you again until I eat it with you in the kingdom of God. And uh, I've always been taught that the kingdom of God in those passages is the church. And that when we gather together on the first day of the week, in some sense... Christ is with us and present 
as we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now, maybe that's not what those verses mean. Maybe they're eschatological or something else. Maybe they're referring to the Revelation 19 messianic banquet, but I don't think so. I think this is a promise from Jesus saying, even though he's going to die and physically leave, he'll be with his followers when they commune in his honor and they proclaim their fellowship with one another. The cup of blessing is the sharing of the blood of Christ, as we learn in 1 Corinthians 10. So I believe that Jesus is with his people uh, in some sense when they commune. And I just don't know how to read. I don't have any dispute with that. And I just don't know how to read. Yeah, I don't know how to read John 6 without thinking, okay, well, when we eat the bread and drink the cup, Jesus is with us in some way. And that really seems to be what the language of John 6 is reflecting. Now, I agree with you. I want to make it clear. I agree with you wholeheartedly Mm -hmm. that that is not all this passage is about. Far from it. I think you're exactly right. And in general, I think you and I are seeing things pretty closely here. But I do want to caution us. I was was, raised with the idea that, oh, no, John 6 doesn't have anything to do with the Lord's Supper. And I think that's a reactionary view against sacramentalism and against the doctrine of transubstantiation. I believe, as Bart has said, you can read this passage and believe it has some connection to the Lord's Supper without being a sacramentalist. And that's just really the case that I want to uh, emphasize in agreement with Bart. Yeah, I was just, I'm not responding to disagree. I'm responding to say, you know, your words have weight with me and I will consider. Um, I think that Jesus is talking about a big picture here of which worship is a very important part and that includes the Lord's Supper. The cases that you mentioned of, uh, there seems to be a hint of a, of a banquet with the Lord. And I always think of that in terms of the now and not yet. Like, uh, who was it that talked Mike. about? Mike the other night. Uh, there is a now component there. There is a not yet component when we are with the Lord. And so I always think in terms of, of that. Not to dispute anything you said, I. I think there are people who do take a reactionary view, you know, and maybe it's a word to the wise. I'll bear that in mind. I don't think that I'm overreacting to sacramentalism, but um, I'll take your words and give them some consideration. Are questions still allowed? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. I'll try not to be too verbose here, but in... Why all the rest of it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, if, we, if we go down the path of saying this has no connection to the Lord's Supper... And I do want to remind yes. you, I did not say it has no connection. Yes. It's a part of a much bigger whole. Yes, if being a, a hypothetical scenario that maybe no one Maybe no one spouses, but if we go down that path and then this, you know, this event would be chronologically first uh, in, the, in this, when we hear this language of eating my, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, and then when we get to Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, and then he says those, those things again, but we've already established this has to be entirely figurative, 
And then when Jesus establishes this, uh, are we creating, are we opening some door for somebody to now have this interpretive stance where since we've already established here in John 6 that this, is, that this is a figurative passage, when Jesus then institutes the Lord's Supper, that that also is a figurative instance and cannot have any, cannot have any literal application to the, to well, the Lord's Supper. Well, we have Supper. to distinguish what kind of figurative and what kind of literal. If it's a literal of the Roman Catholic Church, the bread becomes the real body, and there's an anathema pronounced against anyone who disputes that. The blood, the fruit of the vine, or wine, in their parlance, becomes the real blood. And there is spiritual efficacy of partaking of those emblems. That's why the Crusaders had a mass and partook of these life-imparting emblems before they went out there to slay the Saracens. Uh, that's getting off into the Roman Catholic, a sacramental view of these things. But um, to return to, to your question, when Jesus said, this is my body, that is a figure of speech. That's a metaphor. That loaf of unleavened bread represents his body. We understand that. That doesn't literally become his body, but it does represent it. And so with the fruit of the vine. And so I believe also with the cup. It represents the new covenant. So there's symbolism there. Did the disciples sitting there listening to Jesus at the, that last Passover meal, did their minds go back to John 6 a year earlier? It's very possible that it, they did. But I don't think they really even understood what he was doing right at that time. Because I don't think they really understood yet that he was going to die in a few hours. You can see that over the events as they are described in the Gospels. They are shattered. This was not what they were expecting. We trusted that he was the one to redeem Israel. That's what the men on the road to Emmaus said. Oh, there was a bunch of confused fellows there. But uh, all the light got clearer later on. And it is ought to be clear for us since we have the New Covenant, New Testament written down. And uh, as I've said, this does not need to be something that becomes a war of words with us, striving about words to the sub subverting of, you know, souls. But I do believe that there's a big picture here of which the Lord's Supper is a part, a very important part, not to diminish it whatsoever. But uh, I don't use John 6 when I'm waiting on the table. I've heard brethren that do, and like I said, it's not going to be a discussion as soon as the last, it's not going to be an argument as soon as the last amen is said. It may be a discussion eventually. I'd just like to point out that I am the bread of life come down from heaven is a figurative statement. Mm -hmm. Jesus is not bread. He was making a figurative statement. Right, right. When Jesus took the bread and offered thanks for it or took the cup, that is literal language. There is a figure or two in the use of the Lord's Supper, the metaphor you mentioned and uh, drink this cup. But in drink this cup, you have to have a literal cup to drink out of. But That's right. anyway, that language of the Lord's Supper is literal. And because if we determine that this is figurative, there would be no excuse for interpreting the Lord's Supper as uh, 
totally figurative language. He took a cup and he drank from it and he gave it to them. That's all literal language. I appreciate the input of all of you fellows to the discussion here. And uh, I just want to say in closing how much I appreciate the congregation here. I usually start off my talk this way, but uh, I want to thank the elders and the congregation and the sisters who've done a phenomenal, a phen for some reason I forgot how to pronounce a bunch of words that I knew about <laughs> yesterday. Phenomenal job of taking care of us. Really appreciate that.